We are in Exodus chapter 8 through 10. We're going to be looking at those three chapters in this second uh, sermon in that little mini-series. So last week we looked at Exodus chapter 8 through 10, and we saw the grace through the judgment. How judgment is a good thing that God uses to dispense grace. But this morning we're going to be looking at those same chapters, many of those same passages, and we're going to look at it from a different perspective. We're going to see that how there's grace within that judgment. Grace within hail and flies and gnats and locusts. How can there possibly be grace in there? We'll look at that this morning. And we're going to read specifically right now Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. Here now, God's word. Then the Lord... Yahweh, that's when you see L-O-R-D capitalized in your ESV Bible, that's the, the, the translator signifying to us that this is the name of God, Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from the day it was founded unto now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now we're going to jump down to verse 25. Verse 25 says this, The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. And then verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. This is the word of the Lord. A long time ago, in a magical land called the 80s, there was a film called The Karate Kid. Young Daniel LaRusso sought to learn karate from his master, Mr. Miyagi, so that he could stand up to his school bullies. They made a deal. Daniel does what Mr. Miyagi says, no questions asked, and then he will learn karate. Now at first, Daniel's excited, much like when we first start something new. But then he gets his first task, waxing Mr. Miyagi's car. And that's all. There's no explanation. Wax on right hand, wax off left hand. Do it over and over. Plenty of cars. He thinks this is a useless task. Has nothing to do with karate, but 
He thinks, well, maybe this is the price of admission. Maybe this is just something I need to go through in order to learn actual karate. So he does it. But then he gets his second lesson. And it's not much different. Sand the floors. Right hand, left hand. Right hand, left hand. Then he gets another task. Paint the house side to side. Left to right. Right to left. Paint the fence up and down. Up and down. Eventually he gets fed up. We had a deal, he said. You promised that I would learn karate, but so far all I've done is free labor for you. And just as he's about to leave and give up, Mr. Miyagi calls him. Daniel! And then he starts attacking him with strikes, punches, kicks. Only then is Daniel able to see what all that work was for. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't free labor. It wasn't judgment. He was able to block all of Mr. Miyagi's attacks using the waxing, sanding, and painting motions he had done repeatedly. Why do I tell you the story of the Karate Kid? Well, you might be wondering why certain things are happening or not happening in your life. You might wonder what this account of the plagues has to do with you. You might likewise feel like everything you're going through is useless and a waste of time. It has no real purpose other than punishment or judgment. But as we look more closely at these chapters in Exodus, I pray that you'll see the grace within the judgment. Specifically, we're going to be looking at these three things that are on the slides. In God's judgment, he is graciously patient. We will see that in God's judgment, he graciously preserves. And that in God's judgment, he graciously persuades. First, let's see how in God's judgment, he is graciously patient. How patient has God been with Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Let me count the ways. Exodus chapter 5. Moses and Aaron first come to Pharaoh and he says, Who's Yahweh? Who is this? I don't know this guy. One. Then, before leaving, they plead with him one more time. Let God's people go. He refuses. That's two. You jump to Exodus 7. This time, they provide evidence for Yahweh's power and authority by turning a staff into a snake and having it swallow up the other snakes. That's three. The next day, they turn the Nile into blood, and then all other little pockets of water into blood as well. That's at least four. Now we're in our text, Exodus 8. Yahweh said to Moses in verses 1 and 2, Go into Pharaoh, say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse, I will send plagues. I will plague all your country with frogs. When he didn't respond to that, Yahweh sent another sign concerning flies. He gives another sign concerning livestock. He gives another sign concerning hail. But this one he adds a qualifier to. Exodus chapter 9, verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. There's a warning. There's not just the warning of, if you don't do this, something bad's going to happen. 
there's the gracious reminder that this could be a lot worse. And all of it comes together in Exodus chapter 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. You have repeated warnings, repeated pleas. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? I'm sure we wonder the same thing of our hearts and the hearts of those that we love. By my count, that's at least nine explicit warnings to let his people go and there would be even more to come. Why is God so patient? What we see is that rather than giving them the final, decisive judgment they deserve, God prepares that with several mini-judgments beforehand. This is not like the parent who says, I'm going to count to three, and then doesn't do anything. That's not love or patience. This is more like the parent who sees their child doing something and gives them a warning. If you continue in this behavior, there are consequences. But then when the child doesn't change, the parent delivers. Good parents want to illustrate to their child what will happen if they continue on a certain path. That's why good parents give good consequences and bad consequences. If you do this, you get rewarded. If you don't do this or you do this other bad thing, there's bad consequences. They're trying to show them what lies ahead. That's part of the purpose of the plagues and God's patience. If you continue on this path, Pharaoh, if you continue on this path, sinful, unrepentant Egypt, if you continue in unrepentance, sinful Israel, this is what awaits you. It is judgment without grace. And therefore, we see the grace within the judgment. And God does the same thing to us. He reminds us in Romans chapter 2. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing something very crucial? That God's patience, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But what happens when we don't repent? Because of your hard and penitent and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God here is giving us a gracious foretaste, a gracious look ahead into what is coming for those who do not turn, repent, ask for forgiveness. And what does it look like to store up wrath? What does it look like? We see in the cross of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, his own son, we get another sign, another example of God's patience meant to lead us to repentance. Paul explains in Romans chapter 5 with a familiar verse, 
while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's what we deserve. Death, suffering, those are the consequences of unrepentance. And so at the right time, after warning Adam and Eve, after giving Israel the law through Moses, after giving the Israelites the kings they thought they wanted, after sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, after all of that, God finally sent His own Son, the one whom He had appointed, to show you the consequences that your sins deserve, but also to show you that there is another way the way of forgiveness and humility before God. It was to show you the heart of God, as Peter describes it in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. But instead, He is patient. He is patient towards you. And by the way, He's talking to the church. He's not talking to a bunch of atheists and pagans he's talking to the church he is patient towards you not wishing that any of you should perish but that you should all reach repentance and so for both christians and non-christians the story of the plagues point us to christ there is a god there is only one god he is not pharaoh he is not the God of any other religion. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God revealed in creation, testified to in the Old and New Testaments of the Christian Bible. He is good. He is gracious. He is righteous and kind. His name is Yahweh. Amen? And so if you are living in unrepentant sin, if you are hardening your heart like Pharaoh, I would urge you with the words of, of Acts chapter 17 preaching to the church we read the times of ignorance God overlooked but now there is no excuse Jesus has come God has has taken on flesh the times of ignorance are gone now he commands all people everywhere every tribe every tongue every nation to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That man is Jesus Christ. He is meant to lead you to repentance. He is meant to point you to the gracious, the kindness, and the patience of God at the right time. He died for broken, messed up people like you and like me who thought they had it all together at the right time. He will come again. And so we see that in God's judgment, He graciously, He is graciously patient. But the good news is also that once we have repented, and once we continue to repent, He graciously preserves. In this account of the plagues, we see that God's people and all who obey are graciously preserved. But what do we mean by that? During the plagues in Exodus chapter 8, God tells Pharaoh that there's, there's coming a day, right? On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord 
in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Notice the phrasing. Did did you catch that? God will preserve his people in his land, but that's not the end of the story. Their preservation serves a purpose. That you may know that I am Yahweh. Part of knowing who Yahweh is, is knowing that he is a God who preserves and protects his people. We see the same thing in Exodus chapter 9, verse 26. He says, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. We see a similar protection in Exodus 10. Speaking of the Egyptians during the darkness, we see that they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel, all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Being preserved means we are protected. We are guarded. As, Psalm, as the psalmist writes in uh, chapter 121, he will not let your foot slip. He will guard you. He will keep you. Amen. Hallelujah. And you will also suffer. During the plague of the water being turned to blood, during the plague of the frogs, during the plague of the gnats, during the plague of the locusts, we have no indication that Israel was spared. We have every reason to believe that they experienced those plagues right alongside of Egypt. Now this confusion into what God's protection actually means comes from a confusion of terms. There is judgment And then they're suffering. God's people are protected from judgment. God's people are not spared from suffering. We can confidently say, I hope this is not the first time you're hearing this, but we can confidently say that God's people are protected from judgment. Why? Because of something that is at the core of what we believe. And it's not simply that Jesus died for your sins. No, more specifically, it's that Jesus died on the cross to do what? To take on God's wrath and punishment and judgment for your sins. It's done. The receipt is paid. The debt is paid. It's done. Judgment has been placed on Jesus on your behalf. You are not judged. If God's people were to still be punished or judged by God for our sins, then we would have to confess something that we know is not true, and that is that Jesus is not enough. If there is still judgment to be, to be had for the Christian's sin, then Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough, and we know that's not true. So what is it that we do experience? How would the faithful Israelites have experienced the plagues? I take you back to the Karate Kid. One of the terms of the deal Miyagi made with Daniel was protection. On more than one occasion, Mr. Miyagi protects Daniel when he's outmatched or outnumbered. That's beautiful. That's comforting. That's reassuring. God will protect us. But it's also important to note that Mr. Miyagi didn't lift a finger when he was being punched, kicked, or thrown during his matches. In fact, Mr. Miyagi himself was the one punching, kicking, and throwing him during his training. Why? Why would he protect him sometimes and not other times? 
because as much as Mr. Miyagi was preserving him, he was also preparing him. In John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in the very next chapter, he goes on to pray that long prayer we know as the high priestly prayer. And he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So Jesus, who is God and knows all things and knows what's best for you, does not pray that you would be taking, taken out of the world and its tribulations. But instead, that you would be protected in a very specific way, that you would be kept from the evil one. That you would be protected from the evil one. The troubles, the trials, the, the, the suffering that you endure is part of living in a broken, sinful world. And I want you to hear this. In Christ, none of those struggles that you endure are judgment. Your struggles with your parents and your children and your spouse is not God's judgment on you for not loving them well enough. In Christ, your job not being satisfied is not God's judgment on you for not studying harder in school or working hard enough in your previous jobs. In Christ, your health struggles are not God's judgment on you for not eating and exercising well. That is not how God works. In Christ, all of these difficulties, trials, sufferings, tribulations, they are all what the author of Hebrews calls discipline. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, he's comparing earthly parents to our heavenly parent, our heavenly father. And he writes, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, for our good that we may share his holiness. And then he goes on to add, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Because Jesus, our elder brother, has made Christians part of the family of God, no Christian needs to worry, needs to fear that they are experiencing God's judgment. Rather, you can rejoice that you are being trained. You, you have been placed in the workout program of Yahweh, and it includes suffering. It includes difficult neighbors. It includes not having as much money as you want. That's part of your training program. It's not judgment. It is loving discipline for our good, for our holiness, and for our training. That's why Paul can so confidently and boldly say that we know, we know, in Romans chapter 8, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything God brings into our life is not for the purpose of comfort or pleasure, but for the purpose, for the good of training us to be more and more like our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. But that right there is the key. That's, that's what all of this hinges on whether or not Jesus is, in fact, your older brother, whether or not you are actually in the family of God. That's why it's important to see 
that just as God is graciously patient and graciously preserves, in God's judgment, he also graciously persuades. He graciously persuades. It's, it's really easy to focus on Pharaoh. Right? He's kind of a central character. He's right there. We have lots of interactions with him. It's really easy to, to look at him and determine, well, that's it. The Lord has made up his mind. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's never changing his heart. Done. But have you noticed what's going on around Pharaoh? So at first, way back in chapter 8, the magicians are, are eager, right? They're going toe-to-toe with Moses and Aaron. Bring it, right? Exodus chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt, and the magicians said, oh yeah? Watch this. They did the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Anything you can do, I can do too. That's, that's basically what the magicians say. But in the very next plague, not ten verses later, this is what they realize. They start to realize something. They tried by their secret art to produce gnats, just like Moses and Aaron did, but they couldn't. And what they say? This is the finger of God. They start to realize there's something different here. They start to be persuaded. And so that's it, right? Uh, we, we just need God to send gnats into uh, the lives of our loved ones and they will be convinced, right? No, that's not how it works at all because I, I didn't finish reading the verse. Exodus 19 says this. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was still hardened and he would still not listen to them as the Lord had said. If evidence is all people need, then why did Pharaoh respond differently? Pharaoh and many of his servants saw all these wonderful signs, and yet they still hardened their hearts even harder than it was before. So what is it? Is it that signs are useless? No. No, because the the Lord still uses signs. He still uses suffering in situations to persuade. Look at Exodus chapter 9. It's not just the magicians that are persuaded. When God promises hail, whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, the people closest to him, they hurried their slaves and their livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention left his slaves and his livestock in the field, and we know what happened to them, don't we? So it's true. Events, evidence, it's not enough. It's not enough. If it were, when Jesus came to earth, everybody would have been convinced. If God literally taking, taken on a, a human form, if God literally becoming a human was not enough to convince the, those people, nothing would do it. And yet... The Lord does persuade. The Lord shows us over and over again through the pages of Scripture that He is committed to His gospel. He is committed to making His name known. He is committed to persuading stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. And that's good news for everybody in this room and for all those that we love. Because no one, if you've tuned out, Come back for just a moment. I want you to hear this one phrase. 
No one is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the grace and the power of God. Not the Ninevites who heard an eight-word proclamation from a reluctant prophet named Jonah. Not the Israelites who constantly disobeyed and made false idols. Not Paul who used to literally murder Christians. Not your unbelieving spouse. Not your off-script covenant child. Not your unbelieving neighbor. Not your co-worker, not your longtime friend, not you who struggle with that same sin over and over, year after year. No one is beyond the grace of God. Amen? Believe that. It's really easy to read theology, to sing the hymns, to have our quiet times, but then to believe that, no, that's beyond the grace of God. We would never proclaim it, but we act like it. But we see from Exodus and beyond that God persuades even enemies, even people who are diametrically opposed to any concept of God. And this is all in accordance with God's plan from the beginning to bless the nations. In in Genesis, God begins this plan, you remember, with Abram. And he says, I will bless you. But it wasn't just a plan to form Israel. It was through Israel to bless all the nations. That's why he says... In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is still committed to this mission in Isaiah. When once again, he talks not only of Israel, but the world. He says, it is too light a thing. I want you to hear this. It's too light a thing. It's not enough that you, Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not enough. You can't just save Israel. Rather, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That was the point from the beginning. That's why Israel failed. It wasn't just that they obeyed. It's that they didn't spread their light to the nations. So as much as it's comforting for me and for anyone in my life that I love, that God is still committed to his salvation. That's comforting. It's reassuring. It helps me not to lose hope. Amen. It's also empowering. I have a mission. You have a mission. Every Christian on this earth, whether you are five or 105, you have a mission. And it is summed up with one word, light. We rightly proclaim that Jesus is the light of the world. That he is bringing the light of his salvation into a dark and sinful world. But look at what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 5. And I leave you with this. Having heard the good news of the gospel, I leave you with this charge. Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. You church. You are a city set on a hill. You cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light, Christian, let your light shine before others, however dim it may be, so that they may see your good works and look elsewhere 
Not so that you get the glory. Not so that people can see how obedient you are, but that so, so that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are not enough to convince your unbelieving loved ones that God is real. You are not enough to convince anyone that Jesus is worth centering their lives around. But through his marvelous grace, just like God persuaded you of his goodness, the Lord can use you to change the hearts of friends and enemies alike to call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. That is the heart of God. It is a heart worth worshiping, worth loving, and worth living for. Amen. Join me as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for this gospel. Thank you that you have given us a mission to be part of proclaiming your salvation to the ends of the earth. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us to carry out this mission. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our children might be ready to rejoin us. Just kidding. There's, you'll hear a commotion here in a couple minutes. And we, we joyfully welcome them in. Uh, I want to give this reminder at, at, on, the, on the front end, uh, as, as our elders who are going to help serve come forward, I want to give this reminder on the front end. We have gluten-free bread, if that's a, a restriction for you. We also have non-alcoholic uh, cup. So, uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to partake together. And I think our children might be ready. No, nope, okay, I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop guessing. Okay, I think our children are ready now. <laughs> Third time's a charm. There it is. All right, kids, come on in. We're, we're doing the Lord's Supper. We're doing the Lord's Table. The bread and the cup. Come on in. What we're going to see in this bread and this cup is that just like the plagues pointed to something else, just like the plagues pointed to God's authority over all things, this table also communicates something. It shows us what will happen when the Lord is no longer patient. When the Lord finally unleashes his wrath. This bread which represents God's bo Christ's body and this cup which represents Christ's blood shows us that God is still being patient. It shows us that he still desires all peoples everywhere to repent, to turn from their life of self-sufficiency and turn to a life of dependence on God. It shows us that God is fully committed to preserving his people because he does not unleash that judgment that we so rightly deserve. He holds it back and instead places it on another. But we also see the lengths God will go to to persuade his people. Because he doesn't just put it on goats and lambs and bulls. He places that judgment, the full extent of his wrath, on his own son. That is the beauty of this table. That is what causes us to rejoice. That is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is not a time of exclusively or even primarily reconfessing our sins. We've done that. We've confessed our sins. We've seen how God forgives us. This is a time of celebration. We have been forgiven. The judgment has been placed on another. We are beloved. We have been given a mission. We rejoice. 
because of what this table reminds us of, the body and blood of our Savior. It is a table for any who are in the family of God. And so that is, that is the one warning I give you. If you cannot rightly place yourself in the, in the family of God, this table is not yet for you. I would invite you instead to take this time to consider what it is you're depending on. Are you, are you being like Pharaoh, hardening your heart, continuing to, to reject the tugs of your heart, the evidence of God? Or will you humble yourself before God, before it is too late? This table is not for perfect people or even good people. This people, this table is for people who are weak, who recognize their need of a savior. This table is for people who think they are strong and need to be reminded that they are not. That's who this table is for. So if you are doubting, if you are struggling, Come to this table, rejoice, and be strengthened. And finally, come to this table and see grace. See how God is committed to justice. See how God is committed to his people. See how God is committed to grace. And see the grace within the judgment of his own son. Join me as we pray. Thank you, Lord, for this table and all that it points to. May we take it in hope, in faith, trusting that it will do what you promise it will do. It will strengthen us. It will encourage us. It will give us what we need to do what you have called us to do, and that's to be a light into a very dark world. Thank you, Lord. Help us to rejoice. And we pray this in Christ's name.